Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Delight to be here, and thank you, Shmuley, for inviting me um, on this, um, uh, what should I say, um, nerve-wracking uh, eve of the election. Um, I'm not going to be talking about the election, I'm delighted to say. I, I, I bring you no new polls um, and have no predictions to make. Um, what I do want to talk about, though, is something that relates to the state of American democracy. Um, so my first goal for the evening is to talk with you about the boundary between religion and state in this country. Um, and I want to do that within the framework of our thinking about democracy. Um, because democracy is, remember what Winston Churchill said. Anybody remember what he said? It's the worst form of government except for all the others, right? So democracy is an ideal and a system of governance that we hold dear to ourselves and yet it is, by nature, imperfect. Um, it has its imperfections. One of the, I'd say one of the, the chief imperfections of democracy is the, the very essence of the idea, the rule of the people, right? the rule of the majority. Um, what happens to a minority in a majoritarian democracy? This is a question that is arising throughout the world, um, especially in Europe. Um, and it points to one of the weak points um, in the very idea of democracy. And we're going to be exploring some of the challenges of a democratic system with respect to religion and state today by looking at really one of the most fascinating, well, it's one of the most fascinating research topics I've ever been involved with. I am an historian of European Jewish intellectual history. Um, I study very abstract and abstruse German Jewish thinkers and philosophers. Um, and to me, it's ceaselessly fascinating. Um, I also study the history of Zionism, which, as many of us know, is extraordinarily interesting. But I don't think I've ever encountered a research topic as rich, as complicated, as textured, as Curious Yule New York. And I wanted to share with you the results of nearly a decade of research on that community. And then finally, I want to ask, whether this really unique experiment in what I call Jewish religious communal living is hospitable, is at home, um, is uh, comfortably uh, wedded in, um, knitted into uh, the fabric of American society, or if there's something inimical in it to the American way. If there's something inimical in the American way to Kyrgios Yol. I want to sort of try and come to some determination about that. Um, but let's go back and talk about the complexities of democracy, especially with respect to religion and state. Remember that the American Republic, the very idea of America, was really invented at the anvil 
of the intersection of religious and political authority. The first European immigrants to this country came with the hope of creating a society where they could engage in the free exercise of religion. And out of that ideal grew a larger political system. And that political system that emerged, the political system that was really stitched together by the founding fathers of this country, was deeply imbued with a religious sensibility, with a sense of divine grace and providence, with a sense that the United States that would emerge was uniquely blessed with uh, a measure of uh, God's presence, and the faith of uh, those who uh, together joined forces to conceive of and launch this noble experiment in, uh, in democracy. The founding fathers of this country, as I note here, were very religious people um, in many instances. But they were extremely intent on drawing a boundary between the authority of the state and the authority of the church. They understood that there were grave dangers that could emerge when those authorities became blurred. And they set about in the founding documents of this country to articulate the principle of separation um, no more clearly in a certain sense than in the Bill of Rights, um, in the establishment clause of the First Amendment, um, the first part of which says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, which is to say the state should stay out of the work of determining what is an official religious organization and what is not. But the second half of that sentence says that there should be no prohibition of the free exercise thereof. Just as the state should not privilege or favor one religious group over another, there should be no state religion in this country, so too everybody should have the right to exercise religion as she or he sees fit. Um, I would suggest to you that this is one of the interesting cases in which um, uh, democracy bears within it a certain tension, um, which I hope to unravel um, by um, making reference to the First Amendment uh, establishment clause of the course of the evening. For the most part, American Jews, American Jewish organizations in particular, have advocated for a strict separation between church and state. That's begun to be eroded in our times, um, especially, I would say, with groups like Chabad that are interested in um, inserting religious symbols into the public square and thereby moving religion, in a certain sense, out of the private sphere into the public square. And it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the next quarter century or so. I'd say over the last few decades, we've, we've seen increasing, um, an increasing will willingness, an increasing tolerance for having more public displays of religious expression in ways that unnerve some who believe that that strict separation between church and state is being, in some sense, uh, erased. Okay, um, in terms of challenges to that strict separation, um, I think we can look uh, within the bounds of this very state. If we extend to the northernmost boundary of it, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Colorado City um, and Hilldale. Is everybody here? Okay, yeah, I'm, okay. Uh, it's, is it in the newspaper every day? Okay. All right. 
Well, um, as you may know, uh, this is a community of um, uh, a breakaway group of the Church of Latter-day Saints that uh, continues the tradition of what is known as plural marriage or polygamy. Hilldale and Colorado City are twin cities under the control of a breakaway sect of the Church of Latter-day Saints um, on the Utah-Arizona uh, border. Um, what is important to note in this uh, community is that uh, the police and uh, all sorts of other um, uh, functions of uh, governance are under the control of the leaders of the sect such that the boundary between religion and political authority is rather porous. Um, this phenomena, I should say, takes place, unravels, unfolds against the backdrop of a larger and ongoing, we might even say kind of pendulous swinging battle between federal and state or local authorities. This is a kind of constant dynamic in American history, the pendulous swing between the authority of the federal government and the authority of the local. Uh, so to a certain extent, what goes on in Hilldale and Colorado City can be seen as an attempt to assert the right of the locals to control their own fate. At the same time, the federal authorities um, believe that there were things going on in these communities that were in violation of uh, federal laws um, and brought a civil suit against the two communities um, and won um, uh, on charges of discrimination, religious discrimination, uh, just about a half a year or so ago. Um, so this is one case in which we see uh, not just a tension between local and federal, but between religion and state in which the federal government uh, believed it had um, a legal imperative to insert itself and, um, and uh, bring charges against a community that was flouting uh, its, uh, its blending of religious and political authority. Uh, but again, again in our own pendulous swing, remember that the United States um, and the American Republic uh, were really founded on the principle of religious freedom. And there has been uh, a regular, and I would even say privileged place for strong forms of religious community in this country from the time of the arrival of the first Puritans up through uh, the important role played by one religious group that I just mentioned that essentially was um, not granted but carved out for itself a political entity that would become the state of Utah, um, which is in a certain sense the most successful example of a strong form of religious community that the United States has ever seen. Um, so what I want to suggest to you is that what I'm about to describe is not a complete outlier in American history, but in fact belongs to a tradition of strong forms of religious community some of which actually have recognized political status, Colorado City, and to a certain extent, the state of Utah itself. Okay, so um, I want to look at uh, the case of Curiosiol, New York. Um, and I should have inserted after an anomalous Jewish case a question mark because I'm not certain how anomalous it is in light of the history that I've just uh, recited for you rather briefly. What is it that we're talking about? We're talking about a community of 22,000 people who live <clears throat> within the bounds of a legally recognized village 
A village in the state of New York has to be part of a larger town or city. The village of Curious Joel or Curious Yoel, I'll refer to both, they mean the same thing. Uh, Curious Yoel, it means the village of Joel, and we'll understand why it's called that in a second. Um, is a community of about 22,000, maybe, actually 22,000 was, uh, was the number in 2010. We're probably closer now to 25,000 in 2016. The village of Kirisiol belongs to the town of Monroe. It was carved out of the town of Monroe, and it is made up almost exclusively of Hasidic Jews from the Satmar court. Um, we'll explain what that means, but the community is made up almost entirely of over 99% of the community are Satmar Hasidic Jews who live a very distinctive way of life. In fact, they say that they want to live according to Der Yisrael Sava, the way of the ancient Israel, Israel the Elder, referring back to the biblical Jacob. They favor living within a homogeneous and self-enclosed, segregated enclave. And this, I would suggest, is a very interesting example of what we might call local sovereignty. This is a form of local sovereignty, insofar as we're not talking simply about a neighborhood uh, of Jews living uh, amongst themselves with their own synagogues and other services. We're talking about a legally recognized municipality. How did that come about, and how could that come about in America? Right? Those are, I think, the animating questions. Kirisiol is uh, located in Orange County, New York, which is one of the counties um, uh, due north of, um, of New York City. Um, uh, Kirisiol is 50 miles uh, north of, of New York City, and that's important uh, because um, the founders of Kirisiol required uh, a physical terrain that was far enough away from the city to avoid the seductions and allures of it, but close enough to commute on a daily basis for uh, reasons of econ economic livelihood. So it had to find that balance between distance and proximity. Why is it called the village of Joel, Curious Joel? Well, it is because it is named after this person, the uh, founding Satna Rebbe, or rabbi, Rabbi Joel or Yol Teitelbaum, known as Reb Yoelish, who was born in 1887 um, to a distinguished Hasidic family from Hungary, and I'll talk to you about that in a minute. Um, it was a family that was renowned not only for its intense piety, but also for its combativeness its willingness to engage in battle in order to assure religious purity. And oftentimes, those against whom it engaged in battle were other Orthodox Jews, were other seriously, significantly uh, observant Jews. There were, we might think of it this way. There are circles of hostility, of enmity, in which the Teitelbaum family believed it was located. The outermost level of enmity or hostility was the Gentile world. The next level was the world of Reform Jews, or as they were known in Hungary in this time, Neolog Jews. And then the sort of conservative Jews, who were known in Hungary at that time as the status quo Jews. And then the Orthodox Jews of various stripes. It is those groups against whom 
with whom the Teitelbaum family, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum's family, engaged in combat. To a great extent, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum was a warrior on behalf of religious purity in a world, namely the modern world, that was deemed to be full of pollution. It's a very powerful sense of the imperative to find a place of purity in a world that had otherwise become corrupted. It was very much the part of the sensibility of the Teitelbaum family. Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, before you, was a fierce opponent of all forms of innovation. He believed deeply in the guiding principle of Haredi, or traditionalist Orthodox Judaism, that said, Chadash Asur Min HaTorah, the famous statement of one of the great figures of early 19th century traditionalist orthodoxy, the Chatam Sofer. Innovation of all sorts is prohibited as a matter of Torah. So this was part of the worldview of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum. No innovation was permitted. I would add that between the lines of that statement, that all sorts of innovations creep into the Teitelbaum family and its battles against uh, its foes and into the uh, world that Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum uh, seeks to create. But the declared policy was innovation of all forms is forbidden, and especially uh, for Joel Teitelbaum, Zionism, he, which he called, in a number of publications, the purest form or the greatest form of spiritual pollution the world has ever seen. Uh, Joel Teitelbaum regarded Zionism as a grave threat to the world and believed that it was uh, a violation because the return to the Holy Land was the beginning of the stage of the messianic return and could only be activated by God, not by human action. So in a certain sense, Zionism was an instance of the human arrogation to the arrogation by humans to themselves of what was a divine right or prerogative. That's what Teitelbaum found so objectionable. He was, from an early age, a charismatic pietist, known for his extreme piety, as well as his erudition. Um, and from an early age, he attracted uh, large numbers of followers drawn to that example of charismatic piety. In the 1920s, after he had made his way uh, through various parts of the northeast quadrant of the Hungarian kingdom, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he made his way to a community called uh, Satmar in Hungarian, and after 1920, it was known as Satumare, which some people think, um, in a delicious irony, means St. Mary, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't. It actually means a great village. Um, and there... Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum created what came to be known as Satmar Hasidism, um, an exceptionally pious form of Hasidism uh, that, true to form in this part of Hungary, uh, was rapidly anti-Zionist. That was one of the guiding principles of the movement, though not by no means the only one. Um, Rabbi Teitelbaum was elected <laughs> rabbi of the town of uh, Satomari in 1928, but because of opposition within the community to him, 
He didn't come to assume the position until 1934. This should just give you some sense of the extraordinary potency of the internecine conflicts in this traditionalist world of Hungarian orthodoxy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So intense was the opposition to him that for six years he couldn't come to assume his position as chief rabbi of the town. He finally came in 1934, and over the course of 10 years, he built up institutions in town and attracted thousands of adherents. Um, as some of you may know, the Jews of Hungary believed that they had largely escaped the verdict of certain death because the leader of Hungary, Admiral Horthy, had forged an alliance with Adolf Hitler, and one of the principles of the alliance was that Horthy would be responsible for his Jews. Horthy felt some um, vestige of sympathy for Jews um, and had largely succeeded in sparing them from the fate of their brethren until mid-March 1944. March 19, 1944, the Horthy-Hitler alliance is shattered. The Nazi forces, Nazi and German forces invade uh, Hungary and within a matter of three or four months, three-quarters of the Hungarian Jewish community is deported to concentration and death camps. So Joel Teitelbaum lives in Satmar, in Satomari, for about 10 years. Um, in one of the great ironies of his life, he is saved from the um, process of deportation, uh, which many of his adherents were tragically subjected to. Uh, he was saved by a Hungarian Zionist official who placed him on a train along with 1,683 other Jews uh, which bore the name of that Hungarian Zionist official. Anybody know the name? His name was Rudolf Kastner, the famous Kastner transport, which was intended to take those Jews to safety. Kastner, I should note, forged an agreement with none other than Adolf Eichmann, the SS officer responsible for Jewish affairs. Uh, to Initially, the idea was to transport, to sell uh, or get, get world Jewry to give war material or cash in exchange for 100,000 Jews. But over the course of time, that vision became impossible, and Kostner managed to get about 1,800 Jews, 1,684 of whom were on this transport. Um, the transport was supposed to go to neutral territory, but instead it went to Bergen-Belsen, the concentration camp. And there, those who were on the transport dwelt apart from other inmates for six months before they actually were liberated in early December 1944. And in this ironic way, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, his wife, and his close advisor were spared a near certain death by Rudolf Kostner. In 1946, after brief periods of time in Switzerland and pre-state Palestine, Joel Teitelbaum makes his way on Rosh Hashanah in that year to New York. Um, initially, um, he, not initially, he makes his way after um, alighting from his uh, ship to Brooklyn, which was emerging in this period, the latter half of the 1940s, as an important center for 
um, survivors of the Holocaust, and particularly Hungarian survivors of the Holocaust, who began to make their way to, to various parts of Brooklyn. Uh, how many people here are from Brooklyn? Okay. <laughs> how many people here are from other boroughs in the city of New York? Okay, let's, let's give it up for the other boroughs. The, the, the neglect. I, I, may, I may stump you on this one. How many people here are from Staten Island? Okay, there I got gotcha. you. <laughs> Staten Island? Okay, you live there. That, we'll, we'll take that. Okay. No, I didn't ask who here has ever taken the Staten Island Ferry, because I think that's maybe a larger. Okay. Um, so um, Rabbi Teitelbaum, as we know, um, observant Jews are beginning to make their way to Brooklyn, which has um, an infrastructure to support them to neighborhoods like Borough Park and Crown Heights. Uh, Rabbi Teitelbaum makes his way um, over the course of months to Williamsburg in northern Brooklyn, um, which is now the site of both a very large and strong Satma Hasidic community, and as some of you may know, a group of artists and uh, hipsters who live just north of the Satma community. Um, and a bike lane. And, a, and have insisted on a, a bike lane that has been a source of considerable controversy and tension within the Satma community. Um, What's interesting is that Williamsburg had uh, a Jewish community. Brooklyn had a Jewish community, and Williamsburg had a Jewish community, including an Orthodox community. But it was a much more um, mixed neighborhood until uh, the Satmar Hasidim began to not just arrive, but really to procreate and reconstruct themselves after the destruction, the devastation of the Second World War. Um, and what's important is that Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, who came with his own very clear sense of what it took to not just build but maintain a strictly orthodox community, he brought his new ideals of ritual stringency to Williamsburg and set them in place. And they took hold. His own community uh, began to grow. There was a, kind of, a sense of a kind of moral imperative to procreate at a rapid clip in order to exact revenge upon the Nazis for what they had wrought to, upon the Jews. Um, and other non-Satmar-affiliated Jews began to be drawn to Rabbi Tatelbaum, who was a charismatic figure and who seemed to be uh, stitching together anew uh, the fabric of a society. Um, and indeed, over the course of the first decade or so, the Satmar community in Williamsburg grew exponentially, such that by 1960 or so, um, 15 years later, there were uh, 4,000 souls, whereas when he arrived, um, there were um, uh, a, a couple of dozen um, Hungarian Jews who identified themselves as followers of Rabbi Teitelbaum. But interestingly, from the very beginning, as he began to settle in Williamsburg, which had a Jewish infrastructure and which he was adding to and whose complexion he would change over the course of a decade or so, as all this was underway, he made very clear to his close associates that what he really wanted to do was to find a location outside of the city that was not tainted by, as I said, the allures of uh, a multi-ethnic urban existence, a place that he could call genuinely a shtetl, um, evoke in your mind the image of Fiddler on the Roof, and the shtetl there, um, which was not the historic shtetl that we actually know of, um, which was a much more complicated and uh, interactive and uh, 
multi-ethnic proposition than we tend to think. But Rabbi Teitelbaum, such as, I should add, such as Satumari itself, which was a teeming, multi-ethnic, multilingual, uh, East Central European city with a popula Jewish population that was about 25% of the town at its most. Satma Hasidim often said, we want to create what was once upon a time in the old world. But what was in the old world was nothing like what would take rise in America. Rabbi Tadelbaum wanted a shtetl that would be at a remove from the city that would consist entirely of members of his flock. And he told his chief assistants, please go find me a piece of land where we can settle and create that kind of shtetl that was removed from uh, the impure waters around us. This was the ideal as given voice by one of his followers, um, someone whom I knew quite well, uh, a man by the name of Shlomo Yankel Gelbman, who was the historian of the Satmar community. He wrote a nine-volume biography of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, which I should tell you has sold more books, more volumes than all of the books I've written combined, times 10. <laughs> because every Satmar Chassid has the nine-volume Moshiach Shal Yisrael on his, or his, usually his, uh, bookshelf. Um, uncracked, of course, but nonetheless, <laughs> perfect, well-bound volumes. Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Geldman, uh, the historian, also wrote a volume devoted to the history of Kiryas Yol called Rutzon Sadik, um, in which he talks about the Rebbe's aspiration, which was to create, as he said, a shtetl, a place of purity away from the distraction of the city. This is what the anthropologists would tell us is called an enclave society, a society at a remove from the rest, of, uh, the rest of the surrounding world that functioned according to its own rhythm and really uh, was independent in mindset and sensibility. Um, and yet, I say but with uh, an ellipsis, um, the question is, could it ever be entirely independent of that world around it? That's really the, the question I want to pose, notwithstanding the intention of its inhabitants. In any event, uh, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum's assistants um, began to seek out a place almost immediately upon arriving in Brooklyn that could serve as this self-contained segregated shtetl. Um, they made their way to the aforementioned Staten Island in 1953, entered into negotiations uh, with political authorities there, um, it was sufficiently um, detached from the city. This was, I think, a decade before the Verrazano Bridge was built. Is it the Verrazano Bridge? The, the Verrazano Bridge um, was built, but that was a little too detached in order to allow for facile commuting. Um, after that failed, uh, the assistants made their way to New Jersey, to a place called Mount Olive. Here I have um, a um, New York Times article about uh, the attempt by Satmar Hasidim to have the town authorities hold, their up, hold up their end of the agreement to sell land to them. When the authorities found out that they were selling land to a bunch of Satmar Hasidim, they got, shall we say, cold feet and decided to renege on their agreement. Um, in the wake of that, Satmar, Satmar authorities made their way to Mount Kisco, New York, to a place called Condra's Lake, um, and then by the early 1970s, 
by this point, Satma Hasidim working with Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, who still maintained this passionate desire to create a shtetl outside of the city, um, got smart um, and realized that no one wanted to sell large parcels of land to a group of Hasidic Jews. So a number of uh, Rabbi Teitelbaum's close associates uh, tapped a relative of one of the men, a uh, man by the name of Oscar Fischer, who is a clean-shaven, um, non-observant Hungarian Jew, um, who served as the front man for what, was, what came to be called the Monfield, or depending on what time, the Monwood Development Corporation, that began to purchase land in 1972 in the town of Monroe in Orange County, New York. Over the course of the next two years, the Monfield Development Corporation bought um, several hundred acres of land and began to build uh, development there. They created 75 uh, garden apartments and 25 single-family homes. Over the course of two years, the construction project was overseen by um, a Satmar Chassid who would come up from uh, Brooklyn and uh, hide away in a windowless caravan and oversee the building operation. His name was Chaim Leimzeider. Um, throughout the first year and a half or so, residents of the town of Monroe had no idea for whom this uh, housing development was intended. But beginning in the spring of 1974, first of all, ads began to appear in the Yiddish press advertising houses for sale in the country. And shortly thereafter, Satmar Hasidim, mindful of the fact that this was now going to become an important place of settlement, began to make their way to the town of Monroe and ask some of the residents if they'd like to sell their homes. Um, it's at that point that town of Monroe officials caught wind of the fact that this new development was intended for a group of Hasidic Jews from Brooklyn, which was no cause for celebration on their part, I can assure you. Um, <clears throat> the first settlers from Brooklyn began to make their way at the urging of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum in 1974. Um, and what happened almost from the beginning is there was a series of conflicts over zoning regulations. What do I mean by that? Well, when the town of Monroe said that a particular parcel of land was zoned for, to be a single family home, the idea they conjured up in mind was a typical classic American nuclear family. A set of parents and a couple of kids. Not a set of parents and 8, 10, 12, 15 children, and perhaps the brother and sister-in-law of the couple and another 8 or 10 children. That was not what they had in mind. But that's what constituted in many instances a single family home in the Satma world. Moreover, it was not customary to have in the basement of a garden apartment a mikveh, a ritual bathhouse, uh, a bakery for matzah, uh, a school, or uh, a supermarket, a market. And yet, given the constraints on space and given the ritual needs of the Satma community, this is what these rooms were purposed for. And so we have from 1974, really from the first months of the arrival of the Satmar settlers, 
a constant cat and mouse game between town inspectors and inhabitants of this new development, which became the, the, the source of quite extraordinary tension that reached a culmination in 1976 when the Satma residents threatened to sue the town of Monroe in federal court on charges of religious discrimination. And it was one late Saturday night after Shabbos in October 1976 with, it was October 23rd, Saturday the 23rd and into Sunday the 24th, the court date in federal district court in Brooklyn on the religious discrimination suit was scheduled for Tuesday, October 26th. Town officials were in uh, a, a state of desperation to avoid this federal suit, and they engaged in intensive negotiations led by, as it turns out, a resident of the town of Monroe who happened to be a Jewish lawyer who was the chief point person uh, between the two sides. And in the wee hours of Sunday morning, October 24th, it was decided that the Satmar development would become a self-standing village within the town of Monroe and thereby have the right to construct its own zoning regulations. Um, you might ask, what does it take to create a village in the state of New York? And it turns out it's very easy to do so. If we look at this excerpt from uh, the New York State Handbook, we see a territory of 500 or more inhabitants may incorporate, provided that the territory is not already part of a city or village, meaning a village can only be carved out of a town, not a city and not another village. The, the territory must contain no more than five square miles. Okay, that, that, that was a, a condition met. And uh, it required um, the signatures of at least 20% of the residents or 50% of the, um, uh, those who, 50% of, of the, the major landowners in town. Um, and these were requirements extremely easily met. And so within um, uh, uh, a kind of instant, this private aggregation of landowners, both the Monfield Development Corporation and the independent landowners in the Satmar community, succeeded in transporting, in, excuse me, in transforming their community into a public municipality. Um, and this is a very interesting instance of what I would call communitarianism from the bottom up. Communitarianism refers to a kind of political theory or ideology that grates against the excesses of a hyper-individualist liberalism. I mean, liberalism in the sense of the doctrine that privileges and cherishes the value and importance and integrity of the individual. Communitarianism says there's great value in the organic holistic qualities and properties of community. And in Curious Yol, we see a kind of communitarian spirit from the, from the get-go. But what it yields is something very interesting. You take that communi community spirit. We constitute an organic community, and that's the way we like it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. 
we constitute ourselves, ironically enough, by purchasing private property, which is a basic liberal right. We then constitute ourselves together and assert a single voice in voting. And through doing so, we become no longer a group of private individuals. We become a public entity, a public corporation, a legally recognized municipality. And one very interesting question is, is this a good precedent to set? One can think of all sorts of nefarious groups who might follow in the example of the Satmar Hasidim. And with a mere 500 inhabitants, decide to create a self-standing village with a right to regulate its own affairs. One's imagination can run wild at this prospect. On the other hand, this is entirely legal and permitted according to the laws of the state of New York. Nothing illegal whatsoever was done. So almost instantly, as it were, we have a Hasidic village. And over the course of time, it demonstrates, it has demonstrated, uh, that it was capable of remarkable growth. Um, it was also capable of preserving many of the values that it held dear to it. So the first and most important of which was homogeneity. 99% of the community uh, is made up of Satmar Hasidic Jews. The remaining less than 1% are workers um, who may uh, assist with um, the upkeep of households, uh, nannies from or cleaning uh, women from uh, Eastern European countries and a number of uh, the workers at the local grocery markets who are largely Latino. Um, so by the measures of the community, this homogeneity is, uh, is a, a, a great triumph. Education. The community is constituted by a thick network of educational institutions, echeders and yeshivas, um, which is also the that network is by far the biggest employer in town. Uh, what makes this community an outlier within the larger American Jewish community is not the commitment to education, but the fact that it is extraordinarily rare for anyone to go to college and get a, uh, a bachelor's degree. According to the 2010 census, 7.5% uh, of Curious Yol, uh, member of the, of the residents of Curious Yol received a bachelor's degree as opposed to nearly 60% of uh, the American Jewish population at large. Another distinctive feature that I think bespeaks a sense of the success of the community in the eyes of its inhabitants, 92% of the community speak a language other than English at home. And that language would be? Yiddish. Yiddish. This is a community smack in the middle of suburban New York that is a cradle-to-grave Yiddish-speaking society, cradle to grave, such that um, a number, a good number, uh, of the adults in the community, especially the men, have an imperfect command of English. Women are different for reasons we can explore, but everybody speaks perfect Yiddish, which is the lingua franca of the community. This is a community that operates according to the modesty norms that Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum insisted upon. And in fact, when you enter the community, you will encounter this sign in the bottom uh, right of, uh, of the screen, which uh, enjoins those who come to visit to wear long skirts or pants, depending on their gender, cover necklines, uh, maintain gender separation in all public areas. 
Um, this is what visitors to Curious Yole are asked to do. Um, this is not a sign I should um, make clear that is put up by the officially recognized village of, uh, of Curious Yole because that would be a very blatant violation of uh, all sorts of discrimination norms and the federal government would be all over it. However, what is distinctive about um, governance in Kirisiol is that there is a real blurring of the boundaries between official and semi-official entities. There's something called the Vadakirya, the governing council, we might say, of the village that is not an officially recognized governmental body, but is the governing body of the leading congregation in town that establishes all sorts of norms about whom you sell your property to, uh, what constitutes sufficiently modest attire, um, whether or not you are, have been caught with a computer at home, um, at which point your child might be expelled from school. There are all sorts of uh, quasi-governmental authorities that bespeak the blurred boundary between official and unofficial religious and political authority that are at work here, and the Vadakirya is responsible for that sign. Um, modesty norms are maintained, uh, um, and if you uh, go into the community, you will have a sense that um, uh, these are norms that uh, people are not um, objecting to, that people, residents of the community, want to adhere to these, uh, to these norms with very few exceptions, and those very few exceptions strain and struggle, and then often face the very difficult task of leaving the community, which is a very difficult uh, matter. We can talk about it more. Population. This is the fastest growing community in the state of New York. Uh, its population doubles in size approximately every 10 years. Uh, so it grew from uh, the first 100 residents in 1974 to uh, 8,000 residents, seven to 8,000 residents in uh, 1990 to 13,000 in 2000 to 22,000 in 2010. By the community's own estimate in 2035, there will be 73,000 inhabitants in the town, in, excuse me, in the village of Curious Joel, um, which will make it in, in, in size, if not in name, really the first all Hasidic city in the world. Um, really a remarkable phenomenon. It is a self-regulating community that has its own government. There is a mayor, a village board, and a school board uh, that um, serves as the, all of which serve as the political voice of Kirishiol. Alongside, here it's important to note, the recognized religious authority, um, whom I'll mention in a second, and in between the recognized religious authority, the chief rabbi of Kirishiol, and the village governmental units, there is this quasi-official vadhakirya, this uh, village council, which has under it um, the infamous Vadatsnias, the modesty uh, committee that um, has a network of informers throughout the town to make sure that there are no violations of, of modesty norms. A very important question to ask is, we understand that Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum had as a desire of his the creation of a self-standing shtetl like this. But how is it that it could become um, as big and strong and powerful as it has become. Um, it is a formidable force in both local and state politics, a formidable force. 
Um, and part of the reason is because Satmar Hasidim have engaged political officials really throughout their history, extending back to the old country, to Hungary and Romania after 1920. Certainly in the United States, Satmar Hasidic officials understood the importance of engaging with government leaders in order to advance the interests of the community. Um, and here you see a number of pictures of uh, various Satmar Rebis engaging political officials. Um, that political engagement has been indispensable to the success of this community in reconstructing itself from the ashes of Auschwitz to its quite remarkable power today. Um, I would also say that when you open the door to political engagement, necessarily values enter in that you might otherwise not want in your community. And that's where we begin to see, I think, an unwitting process of assimilation. One official in Kirish Joel told me that in recent years, the community has become a two-party system. Now, there's nothing more foreign to the vision of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, the dominant, all-knowing authority of the community than the idea of a two-party system. And that's a very American ideal that reflects, to a great extent, the existence of this community on American soil. So how did that come about? That's what I want to try and explain to you. Joel Teitelbaum, the only leader that this community ever knew, dies in 1979. Um, you see in this picture just uh, a fraction of the uh, population of the extraordinary crowd, the over 100,000 people who came from all over the world, but especially the New York area, uh, to his funeral in uh, mid-August 1979. He left behind no successor. He only had daughters, and his daughters all predeceased him. Uh, no heirs uh, from that from those lines. The most obvious candidate was his nephew, who was not himself a Satmar Chosid, uh, didn't live in Williamsburg, didn't live in Kiryasiol, but that's who was around. And that person, Rabbi Moses and Moshe Teitelbaum, uh, was appointed as the successor to uh, Joel Teitelbaum over the fierce objections of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum's widow, the Rebetzin, known as Alta Feige, who drew around her a group of followers of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum who continued to hold on to their own moistus, their own institutions, their own synagogues, and eventually schools. They became the first dissidents in Curious Joel, the followers of the Rebetzin, who over time would call themselves the Benai or Benai Yol, the sons of Joel, believing themselves to be the true followers of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, not of his nephew, Rabbi Moses Teitelbaum. So this is one of the defining fissures within the community. A second important fissure that emerges occurs in the mid-1980s when a group of parents, mindful of larger trends in American society, say, we no longer want our children with disabilities to be locked up figuratively in closets. We want to bring them out of the closet and mainstream them and give them educations that they deserve. This is very much of a piece with 
the emergence of the disability rights movement in the United States. And one of the ways in which Kirisiol betrays the signs of assimilation that I've been talking about, this kind of unwitting assimilation, even in a highly segregated community such as this one. Various strategies are uh, attempted to find the right educational setting for the special needs community kids in, in Kiris Joel. None of them work. After a number of years, in 1989, the local New York State Assemblyman from Peekskill, a man by the name of, anyone know? George Pataki, <laughs> who happens to be of what origin? Hungarian, Hungarian origin, and hence feels an affinity with Satmar Hasidim, who feel an affinity with, affinity with him as well. George Pataki, after all the other uh, solutions fail to find the right educational setting for the special needs kids in Curious Joel, comes up with the idea of creating a public school district within the bounds of Curious Joel exclusively for Satmar kids. And that idea is uh, presented to the New York State Legislature which passes it by a vote of 138 to 1. There's now actually a book that describes this attempt to create a Curious Joel school system called The Curious Case of Curious Joel. <laughs> <clears throat> um, but the person who wrote the book was the head of the New York State um, School Board Association. And the School Board Association said, no, wait a minute. This seems to be this seems to us to be unconstitutional because you have basically a religious community that's controlling a public school. What gives here? And they uh, fought against the New York State Assembly um, law known as Chapter 748, um, and it made its way through various jurisdictions uh, up to the United States Supreme Court in 1994, which in fact overturned the New York State Assembly law creating Curious Yole, but gave directions to the Assembly about how to write a better statute that would pass constitutional muster. Like, don't say we are going to create a school district in Curious Joel. Say, one can create a school district under the following conditions. And that's, in fact, what the Assembly did. It took another 10 years or so before the school district, known as the Curious Yole Free Union School District, was officially authorized by the courts. Uh, but during that course of time, the 10 years, it was actually in operation, and special needs kids went to school there. What's important to note is it's not just that groups like the New York State School Board Association objected, and it's not just that groups like the American Jewish Committee objected, because they were amongst the most steadfast in their commitment to the strict separation of church and state. There were many within Curious Joel who also opposed it. Why? They believed that creating a school district run by the state without a mezuzah on the wall, where uh, Martin Luther King Day would be celebrated, but no instruction in the laws of Shavuos. Such a school would be a Trojan horse within the community. It would allow for the importation of foreign values and corrupt the children whom it was intending to educate. And so it, it, those groups fiercely opposed the creation of the pub school district. Amongst them, chief amongst them, were the initial group of dissidents who became known as the Sons of Joel. They vigorously opposed the school district and, uh, and remain to this day uh, opponents of it. 
Um, here, by the way, is chapter 748 that calls for uh, the establishment of a Curious Hill School District. We're not going to spend much time on that because we have a lot more to cover in three minutes or so. Here's one thing I want you to be mindful of. From the outside, Curious Joel presents as a singularly uniform and homogeneous community. If you were to go to um, a public outing, you would see what appears to be a sea of uniformity. From the inside, the community has very serious tensions and fissures. Very serious tensions and fissures. Um, and I've mentioned two of them, one surrounding the first succession battle when the Rebetzin opposed the ascent of Reb Moshe, Rabbi Moses Teitelbaum, to the position of Satmar Rebbe. The second was the public school district. Another and perhaps more well-known uh, division occurred initially in 1999 when the second Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi Moses Teitelbaum, uh, did something completely un unexpected. He essentially decided to divide the Satmar kingdom as it's sometimes known, sometimes referred to as Malchus Satmar, the Satmar kingdom or empire, decided to divide it into two. He told his eldest son, Rabbi Aaron Teitelbaum, who was in Kiryas Yol since 1984, you pick which capital of the Satmar empire you want, Williamsburg or Kiryas Yol. Rabbi Aaron was beside himself. He assumed that he would inherit the mantle of his father and have control over the entire kingdom, as it were. And I should just add, this is the largest Hasidic group in the world today, probably twice the size of its uh, more well-known um, rival, Lubavitch, or Chabad. Um, he decided to divide the kingdom, gave Reb Aaron, his first son, Curious Joel, where Reb Aaron already was the chief rabbi, though not the university beloved chief rabbi, it's important to say. And he gave his third son, who was in Jerusalem at the time, Rabbi Zalman Leib, Williamsburg. This set followers of the two rabbis against one another in very intense ways, which were intensified considerably in 2006 when Rabbi Moses Teitelbaum passed away. And then we began to see um, a series of uh, court uh, engagements back and forth between the followers of the two younger rabbis, Rabbi Aaron and Rabbi Zalman Leib. And this, and I'm not talking about appeals to the Beistin, to the local rabbinical court. I'm talking about court engagements in state and federal court in violation of a longstanding Jewish principle, which is that you don't make recourse to Arkaotshel Goyim, to the jurisdictions of the Gentiles. You keep your own legal matters within your own uh, uh, bounds, even though over the course of Jewish history we know that Jews very frequently uh, made recourse to Gentile courts. There is nonetheless this uh, cherished value that you do not do so. In fact, there have been all sorts of appeals to Gentile courts. Um, I mentioned one of them. That was the, uh, the famous uh, school district case of 1994. I give you um, the judgment here on the left side. Uh, but very interestingly, the dissidents, some of the dissidents in Kiryas Yol have appealed to federal court to dissolve the village of Kiryas Yol on the grounds that it is a theocracy and, and does not separate church from state. 
I mention this to give you a sense of uh, the absence of what we might call schlumbeis, of uh, domestic tranquility within the community. Right? Keep in mind the juxtaposition between that image from the outside of, of holistic unity and uniformity and uh, the image of very significant division from within. Um, and uh, my time is almost out, um, so I want to um, conclude um, by saying that Curious Jewel New York is really a mix of remarkable success, um, a success built upon uh, the set of values and commitments that Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum held very dear to himself and imparted to his followers, a success built as well upon utilizing uh, the instrumenta instrumentality of, of power afforded by the United States. You might say they must have played really dirty in order to get where they are. And I would say to you that what they did is they played good American-style interest group politics better than almost any group I know. <laughs> what did they do? Well, we saw how they became a legally recognized village. They simply utilized the statute of the state of New York. And by the way, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum did not want the community become a, to become a self-standing village initially. He didn't want that responsibility taken on, but it was a necessity because of the zoning battles. Right? They have succeeded in gaining very significant amounts of financial assistance because they can marshal that most valuable political asset, which is what? The block vote. The block vote. And they can elect at the local level any official in the town of Monroe that they want, as well as have a significant impact on state elections, which is why around election season you can be sure that any candidate for senator or governor will be making frequent trips to Curious Yule. Now, what, where, does the, the, where do the seeds of, 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 of failure begin to appear? Well, those very fissures that I talked about run the risk of significantly diluting or mitigating the effect of that political heft, that political power. So that, indeed, is one important danger that lurks on the horizon for this community. If these fissures continue to divide the community, then its greatest political asset will be lost. But there is probably an even greater threat than, um, than the divisions from within, than, which are not at all matters of differences in religious observance. Everybody essentially observes Judaism in the same way, albeit in different sets of institutions aligned with the respective rabbis. Perhaps an even greater threat, with this I do want to conclude, is, would anyone care to venture a guess? Widely acknowledged by virtually everyone in the community. <clears throat> Probably the greatest threat of the community by many orders of magnitude is the, is the internet. The internet. The internet. Um, there are formal prohibitions on home use of computers and the internet. One can use a computer at home only for reasons of economic sustenance. And even there, it's um, uh, very much disfavored. Leave your computer in your office if you need it. That said, many 
Satma Hasidim have today smartphones, <laughs> albeit with a kosher filter on it, but smartphones. Um, and I think not incorrectly, community leaders, officials of the community, recognize that the internet has the potential to altogether break down the very carefully constructed boundaries that officials from Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum on have succeeded in setting up. It's a kind of limitless horizon that the internet opens up. And so one of the greatest struggles um, that the community faces is how to gain control over uh, this, uh, this extremely dangerous property that is so ubiquitous in the lives of uh, all of the rest of us. Um, I can tell you, with this I will conclude, um, that internet use is increasing within the community, um, that there's a growing constituency of, I would call them free thinkers in the community, who mentally have really checked out of the Satmar way um, insofar as they make free use, albeit secretive, furtive use of the internet, um, um, live, if not physically, then emotionally out in the world, and yet for one reason or another would never dream of leaving because they believe to this day that it is the most beautiful form of life, of life that they know of and wouldn't want their children to be raised in any other setting. This is part of the charm, I would say, and part of the distinctiveness of this community, um, which I would say in my final sentence um, is both um, at one level foreign to the way of life that many of us know in America and at the same time very much part of a long tradition of respect for strong forms of religious subcommunity in American history. Thank you for your attention. So I'm going to invite the professor uh, to field the questions himself, respond briefly to them if possible, because there's many different questions, and if you can repeat the questions back as well. Um, would people prefer if we took a bunch of questions yeah, and I would answer them? Okay, let me just make sure to write down. We'll just maybe go, well, we'll start here and maybe alternate. Yeah. Thank you for your questions. I'm going to leave now. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, let me give it a shot in 12 minutes. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, this is what I argue about Kirisil, that uh, far from being um, antithetical to the American way, Kirisil is actually consistent with the American way. And the American way, in the specific ways that you mentioned, which is to say the creation of a separatist community. I think we can point to any number, a long number, a long roster of separatist communities um, established in America on the basis of uh, religious freedom that have not only been tolerated, but in a certain sense, privileged. And that's very different, very different from uh, the European way, um, where you talked about freedom of versus from religion. But what's really important is the absence of state establishment of religion. If you had a state religion in the United States, you would not be able to create self-standing communities like this. It's precisely the freedom afforded by the absence of establishment that allows for uh, such communities to take rise. 
which are not state communities, not state religious communities, but tolerated according to the principle of freedom of religion. And again, I just will affirm what I said, which, uh, what you said, which I think is echoing what I said initially, which is this is an American phenomenon. And the title of the book, which I encourage you all to buy when it's completed in the next few months, is American Shtetl, um, because it is decidedly an American phenomenon. Uh, how were the initial homes financed, uh, someone asked. The initial homes were financed by Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum. Who asked that question? By jo Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum telling um, as, as much was financed in, in the community. Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum would call together his close advisors and say, I need you to raise $50,000 from the following 10 individuals. So this was initially um, a Satmar um, public works project that emerged and was financed out of the uh, desires and will of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum. Um, at a much later stage in the process, public funding became available. Uh, Section 8 funding became available. But the initial funding was Satmar uh, money at the insistence of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, who made it clear. In fact, he said on various occasions, my life will be deemed a failure unless I create this village. So it became very clear to his followers. And I should add that after 1968, in an interesting parallel to the instance of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he had a stroke that left him um, partly impaired uh, physically. Um, it became somewhat more difficult to understand him, as was the case of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But nonetheless, he made it clear that he wanted this community to take rise, and the wealthy patrons of, uh, of, of the community um, stepped up and uh, funding materialized for that first section, section one, and then uh, the next three sections that were created in Kirisiol. The larger question of services. Well, um, services and economics. Okay, so let me say something about economics. The largest employer in town, as I mentioned, is the, uh, is the, uh, school, the private school system. Um, which is funded first through tuition, but second and more significantly by that significant Satmar philanthropic network that I just alluded to. Uh, there are some people of enormous wealth in the Satmar community, including in Kiriasiol, um, and they are extraordinarily generous um, with, uh, uh, with Satmar institutions. Um, so there is a private social service network, all sorts of private Satmar institutions uh, that um, uh, uh, serve the community um, from um, an organization that provides funding to young new newlyweds to um, an organization to the Hatsala system, the, um, the ambulance and medical um, personnel uh, system that will transport people not just to a New York City hospital, they'll transport someone to Johns Hopkins uh, to the hospital in an ambulance if need be. They're very discerning medical consumers. So there's a private system, um, but there's also tremendous, tremendous public assistance. Um, a recent survey from 2014, I, I think it was, showed that 93% of Curiosiol receives Medicaid in some form. 93%. 44% receive public assistance, known as welfare. Um, Curious Yole is, according to the 2000 and 2010 census, the poorest community in America. There's no discernible trace of poverty, at least as we would associate it. 
There's no homelessness. Nobody is starving. Um, at the same, so one leaps to the conclusion that there must be a tremendous amount of welfare fraud. And in fact, this goes to one of the questions about criminality. Uh, over the last five years or so, there have been, I think, three indictments brought against individuals or groups of individuals in Curiciol for various um, uh, uh, accusations of fraud. Um, my own sense of things is that uh, welfare fraud is uh, not nearly, is, is not rampant, um, but we have to understand that if you are a family that has an income of fifty to $60,000 a year, or $50,000, and have 10 children, you can, according to the shifting standards of poverty in the, in the United States, be deemed below the poverty line. Um, and indeed, it is hard to sustain a family of 10 or 12 on that amount of money. Um, so there is a tremendous amount of public assistance, which it is important to note comes about um, both um, at the individual level, but more importantly at the collective level, the large grants for the Curiosol medical system, for example, for the prenatal care uh, system, those large grants come about because Curiosol punches well above its weight politically. Um, and you might say, corruption, this is how it works in America. This is interest group politics. This is how it works. We can condemn it. But this is not, I would say, this is not a terrific outlier um, in terms of the sort of scheme of interest group politics. Um, so the, back to economics. The largest employer is the school district. About 20% of the community commutes longer than 60 minutes, which means to New York or New Jersey. Um, there are regular buses. You mentioned buses. There are buses that go on the hour, so every day to both Brooklyn and Manhattan. A lot of people go to a major Sutmer business um, in Manhattan, the major Sutmer business. B&H. B &H. B &H. Good, you're consumers of B&H. Um, uh, and the other, so that's about 20%, um, about 35% or so is the public school district, is, is the, excuse me, the private school district. And the rest of the economic life of Curious Joel uh, consists of commercial activity in and around the shtetl, in and around the village. Um, there's a growing, a burgeoning sort of uh, commercial life um, that um, is, is run by uh, Satmar uh, residents in Kiriziol. Um, and along with these traces of poverty, we do see that there's, there are growing rates of affluence in the community, um, which are discernible in uh, the display of of ostentatious wealth in private homes, which still are very much the outlier. What is so striking about a visit to Curious Joel in the midst of a wooded area of suburban New York is to see four and five story uh, apartment houses, um, one after another. Um, that does not fit with our image of the single family ranch style home on a tract of land. Uh, Curious Joel, I should note, someone asked about growth. It's exploding at the seams. It is 1.1 square mile. Population density there is many, many times uh, the average of Orange County. What this means is that there are constant and very ferocious battles with surrounding uh, neighbors, municipalities, over attempts to annex additional land to allow for population growth. Uh, there's a group that took rise in the town of Monroe called United Monroe 
which very interestingly has forged an alliance with the most important group of dissidents within Kyrgyzstan, known as the Kyrgyz-Jol Alliance. And this has the potential to completely reconfigure the political landscape, right? given the importance of the bloc vote. If the KJ Alliance allies itself with United Monroe and elects officials other than those of the establishment party of Rabbi Aaron Teitelbaum, this will be new. And this runs the risk of, of, of uh, diluting the power of uh, the community, but also allowing for a two-party system to take rise, right? for a, a, a more operational democracy. Um, all right, uh, newspapers. Um, no, the Forverts is, is not read by anyone in the community, or, very, or if it is surreptitiously, and never was. It's a socialist newspaper. The community has its own uh, competing papers, of course. Everything's um, a competition, competing sets of institutions. Der Yid is the newspaper of Rabbi Zalman Leib, who's centered in Williamsburg. Der Blatt is the newspaper of uh, the Aroinim, the, the uh, faction associated with the establishment party in, uh, in Curious Joel. Are they all in Yiddish? Yes. Um, uh, who are Satmar voting for tomorrow? <laughs> well, you know, Satmar Hasidim are very pragmatic when it comes to, um, when it comes to voting. Um, I, I just saw that Rabbi Aaron Teitelbaum issued a an edict to his followers to vote for Hillary Clinton, um, who was, has been a, a friend of the community when she was a US senator. I'll give you an example of the pragmatism of a community. It's a story that was told to me by uh, the mayor of the community, Abe, Abe Weider, um, who told it with a twinkle in his eye. Uh, he said he and a number of his um, associates were summoned by then Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott to come to Washington. Um, at which Trent Lott was trying to persuade uh, Kyrgyz Joel and all of its electoral assets to vote for uh, the Republican candidate for United States Senate in New York, Rick Lazio, who was running against Hillary Clinton. Um, the Satmar Hasidim were skeptical. Rick Lazio was down like 40 points in the polls, and they don't bet on the wrong horse too often. And Trent Lott caught this. But clearly, he didn't receive an adequate briefing because he said, now, if you boys vote for Mr. Lazio, I promise you that I will support the state of Israel until my dying day. <laughs> and Abe Weider told me this with a real sense of humor, like understanding the, the layers of misunderstanding that can surround this community. All right, uh, healthcare, um, uh, final word, healthcare. Uh, Satmar Hasidim take healthcare very seriously. Um, there is um, a very impressive facility in town called the Ezra Schoilim um, with its own professional staff that caters to um, thousands of visitors every year um, with large amounts of state and federal funding. Um, but as I said, this is a very, albeit not university educated, a very discerning group of medical consumers. Um, and they will make their way to the very best hospitals um, in the city or state. Um, and um, there's a real, very powerful sense of the importance of 
taking care of one's own, which is why a number of the institutions like the Hatsala, the Ambulance Corps, um, the EMT uh, Corps, um, are completely undiscriminating when it comes to which faction do you belong to. For a good long time, relations got so bad between the Zalis and the Aroinis, between the followers of Rabbi Zalman Leib and the followers of the Rabbi Aaron, that not only would you not go to the Simcha, the, the celebration of the other camp, it was unimaginable that your children would intermarry. Um, that's begun to loosen up a bit of late. Um, you now will go to the simchas of the other. You'll even daven in the shul. You'll pray in the synagogue of the other camp. Things are beginning to change, though um, they still have completely separate institutions, which means um, one of the most important days celebrated in the, um, in the Satmar calendars is the 21st of the Hebrew month of Kislev, which is the day on which Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum was liberated from Bergen-Belsen as part of the Kostner transport. It's celebrated every year with what is called in Yiddish a dinner, uh, a big dinner. Um, <laughs> and when I mean big, I mean 10,000 men gathered in one spot with the entire array of New York City officials parading up to greet or be greeted by the rabbi. Each of the two main communities has its own dinner at an armory in Brooklyn every year. Um, so how to explain this? Well, once upon a time, this was seen as, as a tragedy, that somehow the, the community had become divided. Now, the line that we hear, um, and it was really sounded for the first time by uh, a follower, a close associate of the second Satmar Rebbe, and now a close associate of, of Rabbi Zalman Leib. Now what you hear is, competition is good. <laughs> and that, I think, indicates yet again the ways in which Satmar, so the most isolated and segregated of Hasidic groups in American life today, is nonetheless decidedly American. Right? It's sort of absorbed that great American capitalist spirit. Competition is good. So I'll leave you with that. Thanks so much for your attention. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.